Hackeye Magazine explores science, society, and the environment from a coastal perspective. Today's feature article is The Demon River. In November 2021, British Columbia experienced a storm for the ages, an atmospheric river that unleashed the most costly disaster in the province's history. But nowhere experienced the flood like the Nicola River. Written and read here by J.B. McKinnon. Originally published in November of 2022, the audio version is presented here for the first time. Introduction To the list of moments when automotive GPS has given very bad directional advice, we can now add the case of Constable Brett Schmidt of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. On the morning of Monday, November 15, 2021, Schmidt was on an off-duty visit with his girlfriend in Kamloops, a city in the arid plateau region known to British Columbians as the Interior. From there, he planned to make the long drive to his home in a suburb of Vancouver on the shores of the Pacific Ocean. In between Kamloops and Vancouver are the Coast Mountains, which roughly divide southern BC into wet and dry country. Slopes and valleys westward of the peaks catch precipitation blowing in from the sea and are famously soggy, while the interior to the east lies in their rain shadow and, in places, resembles a desert. Unfortunately for Schmidt, heavy rains on the wet side of the mountains had triggered floods and mudslides there, blocking three of the four highways he might have used to get home. Schmidt was unfazed. Road closures in southern BC come as no surprise in any season but summer. He was left with Highway 99, a less traveled road that would, on a day with better weather, be described as the scenic route. A couple of hours into the journey in his black GMC pickup, driving through rain even in parts of the drylands, he learned that Highway 99 had closed somewhere in the coast mountains ahead of him another mudslide, or what geologists call a debris flow. Vancouver, which is Canada's third largest city and most important seaport, had now been completely cut off by road and rail from the rest of the country, by a rainstorm. There was nothing Schmidt could do but turn around. He had been on the road since 8.30 a.m. It was now around 11 o'clock. He drove back to the ruins of Lytton, an interior town that had made international news earlier that year when it hit the highest temperature ever recorded in Canada, 49.6 degrees Celsius, that's 121 degrees Fahrenheit, and one day later burned down to its metals and concrete in a wildfire. From Lytton, he turned north to follow the Thompson River. He soon reached the hamlet of Spences Bridge, which had also been evacuated during the wildfire season. There, his GPS recommended a right-hand turn onto Highway 8, a quiet connector between two more major highways. From Spences Bridge, Highway 8 follows the Nicola River upriver to the town of Merritt, retracing a route he had already driven that day. Schmidt quickly noticed a difference. Earlier, the Nicola had looked swollen. Now, it had an air of menace. The water barreling through the near-desert landscape seemed unreal. 
The river beside the road was three times as high. It was flowing really quick, Schmidt would later recall. Like you could go whitewater rafting on it. He carried on. The valley is normally a lovely one, the narrow river swaying between steep walls of rock or clay interspersed with terraces of sagebrush and bunch grass. This year, though, wildfire had reduced whole mountainsides to black sticks jutting out of bare earth. The flames had not, at least, raised the scattered homes or the roadside fruit and vegetable stands. Schmidt was on a stretch of road, running low along the river, when he felt the ground shake under the wheels of his truck. Glancing into his rearview mirror, he saw that the asphalt he had just passed over had caved in and fallen into the churning water. Holy shit, he said under his breath. There seemed to be no better option than to keep going and hope for the best. After another few kilometers, he could see a hill in the distance where the road climbed up and away from the hungry river. If he made it there, he'd be out of harm's way. The hill was looming up in front of him when, as he crested a rise in the highway, he had to jam on the brakes. The road was gone. It simply ended, a jagged break. In its place was the raging Nicola River. Chapter 1. A River in the Sky Nearly a century ago, in 1929, Aldous Huxley observed that there were signs we might be winning the age-old battle of man against nature. It had become impossible to see a mighty river or mountain without also seeing the possibility of a mighty bridge or tunnel. If citizens of Western civilization we're falling in love with wild nature, Huxley said. There was a simple explanation. It is easy to love a feeble and already conquered enemy. Sixty years later, nonfiction writer John McPhee published a book, The Control of Nature, describing an epic human battle to manage geological forces at supersized scales. Keeping the Mississippi River from changing its course, say or preventing flash floods from moving the San Gabriel Mountains onto Los Angeles. Were we still under the control of nature, or had we taken control of it? In recent years, that question has come to seem firmly decided. Many now describe our times as the Anthropocene, or human age, with the implication that, for better or worse, we are dictating the terms of Earth's future. Among many such indicators provided as evidence, we have made the chicken the world's most numerous bird. The weight of the technosphere, everything we build and make, our stuff, now outweighs all living things. Faced with a deadly pandemic, we created a vaccine in less than one year. Most astonishing of all is climate change. As terrible a threat as it is, it's hard not to stand in awe of our own powers. We are heating an entire planet. Our solutions to the problem include proposals for even grander engineering schemes, such as fogging the worldwide atmosphere with reflective particles to scatter sunlight back into space. History teaches that we often turn such dreams into realities, 
complete with unintended consequences. Lately, though, nature has seemed to reassert itself. It has reminded us that it can be, as Huxley put it, alien and inhuman and occasionally diabolic. We have been content to think of climate change as a gradual process, but here and there, and with increasing frequency, it lurches. Unlucky people wake up to weather that doesn't just set a new record, but smashes it, that renders a familiar landscape suddenly and shockingly unfamiliar. Not just a bad day, but a bad day out of another epoch. The makings of a very bad day on the Nicola River first took shape in the afternoon of November 12, 2021, three days before Constable Schmidt turned onto Highway 8. Just north of Hawaii, a vast reservoir of moisture had pooled in the sky, fed by a humid tropical jet stream and evaporation from an unseasonably warm Pacific Ocean. Like water spilling out of a lake into a canyon, the moisture began to flow northeast, squeezed between a low-pressure system and a high-pressure system. In less than a day, the plume traveled 2,000 kilometers to North America's west coast. From space, it looked like a rushing river, and the comparison is more than fair. It probably carried more water than the Amazon, the world's largest river by volume. We never truly saw atmospheric rivers, as these flows in the sky are now known, until scientists produced the first images of them based on satellite readings in the early 1990s. In everyday life, they go by other names, such as Pineapple Express or Tropical Punch, storms that cruise up from the tropics, mainly in the late autumn and early winter, bringing stiff winds, warm air, and heavy rain. Over time, we learned that dozens of atmospheric rivers flow up to the North American shore between California and Alaska each year. It is one of the most active atmospheric river zones on the planet. Most of these precipitation events are valuable. A single storm can deliver one-fifth of an area's annual rainfall, replenishing groundwater, rivers, and lakes. Sometimes, however, they're trouble. More than three-quarters of BC's disastrous floods have occurred when an atmospheric river fell out of the sky. Atmospheric rivers have never yet been given names the way windstorms have, such as Hurricane Ian, or Super Typhoon Noru. In the United States, however, a five-point scale to describe the intensity of atmospheric rivers, not unlike the ranking applied to hurricanes, was proposed in 2019. A weak Category 1 atmospheric river would be a beneficial rainstorm, giving comfort and succor to farmers and ducks. A Category 5 might do billions of dollars worth of damage. A lot depends exactly where a storm's rain falls and for how long. The one pouring toward the North American shore in mid-November of 2021 was 400 kilometers wide, about 4,000 kilometers long, and looked powerful. The question was where it would land. Armel Castellan, 
a warning preparedness meteorologist at the Meteorological Service of Canada, compares an atmospheric river to a fire hose. Hawaiian fire hose is another of the nicknames sometimes given to these storms. If the nozzle is aimed at you, you're getting drenched and pounded. Stand a little to either side, and you might not even have to worry about your suede shoes. But, also like a fire hose, atmospheric rivers tend to twist and snake. They most often move across large regions of the coast, rather than steadily drown one particular place. You would never ring the alarm bell early, because you can be off by a thousand kilometers as to where it's going to hit, Castellan said. To solve the puzzle of where an atmospheric river might end up, meteorologists and flood forecasters crunch computer weather models from multiple sources to see whether they tell similar stories about what is likely to happen. In the case of the mid-November storm, the models initially did agree on a trajectory. The fire hose was expected to split down the U.S.-Canada border, then shift southward and leave British Columbia behind. Generally, the models estimated that 150 millimeters of rain would fall along the atmospheric river's path, with some pockets receiving 200 millimeters. That's very heavy rain, even for the BC coast, where umbrellas sometimes seem to be reserved only for downpours so intense that breathing becomes difficult. The mid-November storm, though, was only the latest in a parade of severe weather events, including other atmospheric rivers that have been striking the area since September. Nobody was in a particularly alarmed state, Castellan said. But going into Saturday or Sunday, it was like, oh wow, this is getting pretty strong. By that point, the weather forecasting phase was largely over. The river had arrived. Normally, atmospheric rivers that hit British Columbia run into momentous geography soon after reaching the coast. When that happens, the storms get pushed up to a cooler altitude, and the water vapor they carry turns to rain. Even before reaching BC's southern mainland, which bristles with mile-high peaks, a river in the sky must get past the gateway formed by Vancouver Island and Washington's Olympic Peninsula, both mountainous. As the mid-November atmospheric river rolled in, however, the high-pressure system to its south nudged it onto a perfect path to avoid every barrier, threading a needle, as Castellan put it. The core of the storm eased over the low country at the tips of the two gatekeepers. That same angle of approach took it straight into the broad Fraser River Valley and nearly a hundred kilometers inland before it finally ran into mountains. There, the storm loomed over the Coquihalla Highway, which leads into the BC interior. The river in the sky needed to flow just 35 kilometers to reach the roadway's summit, Coquihalla Pass, where the wet, seaward side of the mountains switches to the dry, rain shadow side. Lush forests gradually give way to straw-gold bunch grass. The dry side is dry for the obvious reason that large amounts of water do not ordinarily fall there. Atmospheric rivers mostly peter out among the ranges nearer to the coast. No Canadian weather model 
predicted that the mid-November storm, still sagging with water, would surge across Coquihalla Pass like a river flooding over a dam. In the early hours of Sunday, November 14th, it did exactly that. Then it started to drop the kind of rainfall that the dry side might not have seen in centuries. Chapter 2. It's not going to get any higher. Doug and Marlon Wyatt Purden are used to having strangers on their doorstep, lost travelers who never meant to turn down Highway 8, or people with car trouble. The sign at the head of the driveway into the Wyatt Purden's property, Nine Mile Gardens, welcomes these wayward pilgrims. The use of mileage in that name, instead of the usual Canadian kilometers, is a holdover from the era before metric measurement. What is now Highway 8 was once a trail walked by the region's indigenous people, the Inklakapma. When colonial newcomers built a wagon road up the valley in the mid-1870s, they marked out locations by their distance in miles from Spence's Bridge, and those areas are still known that way today. Starting at Spence's Bridge, then, Highway 8 runs southeast up the Nicola River for 65 kilometers to the larger town of Merritt. En route, the landscape divides into two moods. The first section, up to the point called 14 Mile, has a wilder, more remote feel pressed in upon by mountain steeps. Upriver from there, the valley gradually takes on a more open aspect. In between the two sides is Shacken, an Inklakapma community perched where the river starts twisting through canyon country. Nine Mile Gardens stands just downstream from the canyon's last narrow squeeze. The Wyatt Purdens had originally settled in Ashcroft, a small town north of the Nicola Valley, where Doug had worked at a bulk oil plant and Marlin was a nurse. In 1977, they acquired Nine Mile Gardens and became pioneering organic farmers. People who don't live beside rivers can often be heard saying that people who do can't complain about floods. But that judgment should surely be shaded by how flood-prone a riverside property actually is. When the Wyatt Purdens moved into their house, it had been there for 66 years and never, to their knowledge, been flooded. They then proceeded to live there 44 more years without a flood. When I got a call at 7.30 a.m. on November 15th from Inklakapma friends downriver who said the water was rising, the white Purdens weren't too concerned. In the early afternoon, a black pickup rumbled down their long driveway. By then, the river was higher than they'd ever seen it and rising. It had knocked over their irrigation pump house, and they'd moved their farm vehicles to higher ground. Doug walked over to meet the arriving stranger. Are you here to evacuate us? Doug said, joking. Well, I actually am with the police force, Constable Brett Schmidt replied. Schmidt hadn't driven far from the dead end he came to on Highway 8. From there, it was only a few hundred meters back to Nine Mile Gardens. Schmidt was hoping the Wyatt Purdens had a landline telephone, mobile phone signals, get lost in the valley's complex topography, and Schmidt wanted to alert his police colleagues in the RCMP 
known as the Mounties, that trouble was brewing in the Nicola Valley. The Wyatt Purdens did have a landline. Unfortunately, it was no longer working. Somewhere to the north, downriver, the flood had already broken the link. Doug knew, though, that their neighbors at Clapperton Ranch, a mile upriver, were on a separate landline that ran to the south. To get there, Schmidt would have to scramble across the steep, rocky slope above the bend where the river had erased the road. Schmidt promptly set off for Clapperton Ranch. As he did so, one of its owners, Alan Simpson, was watching him. Simpson's day had started much the same as the Wyatt Purdens's. A neighbor had dropped by to say the river was high. What struck Simpson was how strange the water looked. Clapperton Ranch sits at the head of a short slot canyon, and just before that constriction, the water slows. The Nicola normally runs somewhere between sparkling clear and brown as mud. On this morning, it was black. It looked like a cooling lava flow, ebony and oozing. Simpson realized it was choked with ash and charcoal. Somewhere upstream, rain was falling hard on the fire-scorched landscape. Like the Wyatt Purdens, Simpson and his partner Christine Remington weren't initially too worried. Their house was separated from the water by broad hayfields and a slope that lifted them to the height of a four-story building. They had lived at Clapperton Ranch for almost 20 years, and they knew the land. Even before moving there, they had researched it as an ideal place to grow quality hay. Developing this farm was the highlight of my working life, said Simpson, who has the air of an artist or writer as much as that of a rancher and farmer. Simpson and Remington knew the 100-year flood mark on the ranch, and as the river climbed well past it, Simpson drove his rugged terrain vehicle, a Japanese brand of microtruck, along the highway to a bend with a view downriver. He saw Schmidt, far away and out of earshot. Schmidt, who was standing near his truck on the dog-toothed stub of pavement where the road had failed, was sussing out how to cross the scree slope above the missing section of highway. Simpson could see that the river had dangerously undercut the pavement that Schmidt and his pickup were on. If it collapsed, Schmidt would trap door into the rapids. Well, Simpson thought, I can't do anything for him. Turning for home, Simpson soon saw the running waters now threatened the ranch's two barns and other outbuildings. He headed down to open the barn doors so that the river could run through them, hoping this would lessen the chances that the current would tear them down. It was the same trick Hercules used to clean the Aegean stables. Driving up from the lower fields, Simpson saw the water surge behind him, rising suddenly by a meter. It was like a tidal wave, Simpson said. Then it started to pull the buildings apart. And then the river really started to come up. In the midst of it all, Schmidt arrived at Clapperton Ranch. Using Simpson's phone, Schmidt called an RCMP friend in Merritt. Schmidt's fellow Mountie hadn't heard any reports of flooding on the Nicola River. So Simpson called the emergency line. 
He also sent a message to Steve Rice. Rice was the area's regional director, and with his wife Paulette, owns a popular Spences Bridge restaurant called The Packing House. Most of all, Rice is known as a can-do guy. In his message, Simpson told Rice that there were people along the highway who might need evacuation. After all of this, Schmidt was left with the sense that he could get a ride out of the valley when Rice came upriver to check on people. Relieved, he made the treacherous walk back to his truck, then drove again to the Wyatt Purden's neat red house with the white trim, where the backyard was now more river than yard. Steve's on his way, Schmidt told the Wyatt Purdens. In fact, Steve Rice was not on his way. The Rices already knew there was no way upriver. Their home and small farm was on the Nicola close to Spences Bridge, and by mid-morning the rising river had convinced them to head into town, where they have a suite attached to their restaurant. Steve Rice had shuttled back and forth to their house two more times, grabbing things that they might need for what they imagined would be a short stay. By his second run, both lanes were flooded in one section of road. Like so many others in the Nicola Valley, Rice wasn't overly concerned. Once the river broke the record, your mindset is, it's not going to get any higher, he said. No one was really panicking. There was no urgency. No one was packing bags. The whole family we call it the Highway 8 family, was just been here, done that. Forty-five minutes had passed by the time Schmidt concluded that Rice would not make it to Nine Mile Gardens. The short November day was beginning to fade. Schmidt fixed a new goal in his mind. He would leave his truck at the Wyatt Purden's farm and walk to Spences Bridge. From there, he could tell the outside world that a flood was rising. He could find Steve Rice. A friend could pick him up, and he could begin to put this bad day behind him. Doug Wyatt Purden offered to drive Schmidt back down Highway 8 until they reached the first washout. That turned out to be only a couple hundred meters away, just over a gentle hill. Schmidt got out of Doug's pickup, put on his backpack, strapped his duffel bag across his chest, and started hiking. He didn't know if there'd be much highway left for him to walk on, but at least he knew the distance to Spences Bridge, nine miles. With the low November sun setting at 4.18 p.m., he had less than two hours of daylight to go. Chapter 3. More Flood for Less Rain the Wyatt Purdens had a rain gauge. On the day of the flood, 20 millimeters of precipitation fell in fits and starts. That's the depth of a finger of whiskey, or what Doug calls a pretty good rainfall for our area. Clearly, the water that was swelling the Nicola River came from somewhere else. Two of the Nicola's biggest tributaries, the Coldwater River and Spias Creek, run down from the dry side of Coquihalla Pass, about 100 kilometers away from Nine Mile Gardens as the water flows. The cold water is the larger of the two streamways, halfway between its headwaters and the town of Merritt, where the cold water flows into the Nicola, 
A corrugated metal shack housed a gauge that was tracking the cold water's flow, as it had done continuously since 1965. At 4 a.m. on Sunday, November 14th, that sensor began to report a river that was steadily rising. Even in summer, Coquihalla Pass, 1,200 meters above sea level, is nearly empty of anyone but drivers humming along the Coquihalla Highway between BC's interior and its coast. By noon on November 14th, even the traffic was gone because flooding and debris flows had slammed the highway shut. The atmospheric river hadn't just breached the pass, it was holding its position there, drenching the area hour after hour. The rain was falling on a landscape primed to make matters worse. Autumn snowfalls, including a fresh layer laid down by a cold front just ahead of the storm, had turned the mountains white. When snow is deep, it can act as a sponge and absorb a rainstorm. But it wasn't that deep. When the atmospheric river arrived, its warm air and rain turned the snow into liquid. Among the summits that feed the Coldwater River and Spias Creek, the rain and snowmelt together, if spread evenly, could have covered the landscape with 12 centimeters of water. Some areas recorded twice as much, nearly enough to submerge a grade school ruler stood on end. Under normal circumstances, the forests and soil would drink up a lot of that water. That didn't happen either, because an unusually wet fall season had saturated the land. The unusually hot summer, meanwhile, had left a large area around the Coldwater River incinerated by the July Mountain wildfire. In an intense fire, the ground litter of leaves and twigs can vaporize into a gas that penetrates the soil, then cools to form a waxy film. An early study explaining this chemical reaction described this waxy layer as extremely non-wettable. Water runs right off it. The land saturation, combined with water-repellent soil in the burn zone, sent the atmospheric river downpour swiftly into the Coldwater River and Spias Creek, creating what John McPhee once called more flood for less rain. Except that there wasn't less rain. Scientists would later conclude that the greatest factor by far in the flooding was the god-awful sheer volume of water that fell from the sky. To understand how surprising this outcome was, consider the fact that the Provincial River Forecast Centre, which predicts stream flows across British Columbia, had only two of its five hydrologists, as people who study Earth's water systems are known, working that weekend. Forecasts were looking not so bad, said David Campbell, head of the centre and one of the people on the job as events unfolded. Since weather models did not predict serious rainfall on the dry side of the mountains, computer models of river flows didn't predict serious flooding. As the day wore on, the Coldwater River gauge, nearby weather stations, and even social media posts were clearly indicating that the storm was dropping a whole lot of water on Coquihalla Pass. We ran the model and sort of just forced rain into the model, 
Campbell said. It showed that the Coldwater River was likely to flood. That was pretty much the time when we pushed the button on the flood warning for the cold water. It was 5.30 p.m., and the cold water was rising toward the kind of water volume only seen every half century. In what would later prove to be a clear oversight, the River Forecast Center did not simultaneously issue a flood warning for the Nicola River, even though the surging cold water flowed straight into it. The center was by then seeing potential flooding in streams along the entire length of the atmospheric river's landfall, from Vancouver Island, off BC's southern coast, to the interior. They had shifted into a mode of reacting in the moment, and they weren't picking up a problem on the Nicola yet. The National Hydrological Service, the federal team responsible for the gauges that provide critical information to agencies like the River Forecast Center, was similarly caught off guard. When rivers flood, debris or shifts in the river channel can damage river gauges or render their data unreliable. On the morning of November 14th, David Hutchinson, regional chief of the Hydrological Service, started trying to organize two-person teams to get eyes on river stations like the one on the cold water. I realized this is a much bigger event than was anticipated, he said. His first task, though, was difficult in the most ordinary way. It was the weekend, and no field staff were standing by because no weather disaster had been expected. There was another, subtler challenge. Flood forecasting relies heavily on computer modeling, but Campbell said that human judgment is still more important. In this case, the experience, skill, and knowledge of his team. What happens, though, when an event is stretching beyond the experience of the team, beyond living memory, and beyond what is known from history? As hydrologists, we recognize that those kinds of events could happen, said Campbell, but they're almost a little more theoretical than something that we anticipate or expect to see. Along the Nicola River and its tributaries, river gauge readings go back only a century. And even across that time span, they're spotty. Saying what a 100-year or 200-year or 500-year flood looks like on these rivers is therefore an educated guess extrapolated from the available data. Two points, though, are clear enough. The first is that extreme floods are, by definition, rare. The second is that flooding on rivers like the Coldwater and Nicola typically happens in spring when rising temperatures melt the snowpack. Even hydrologists, then, may lean toward the same belief that was common among residents of the Nicola Valley, that a flood that is already bad isn't likely to get a lot worse, especially in autumn. What makes the difference for scientists is that they are typically able to track data that might tell them otherwise. Unfortunately, the sources of that data were in trouble. Five river gauges were providing information about what might happen on the Nicola River, two on the Coldwater, two in Spias Creek, and one keeping tabs on the Nicola itself. In the mid-afternoon of November 14th, one of the Spias Creek gauges started sending wonky signals. It was measuring atmospheric pressure rather than water pressure. Most likely, 
the sensor had been levered above the surface by debris. A couple of hours later, after sunset, the second spice gauge began sending signals like a ribbon blowing in the wind, said Hutchinson. Then the cold water gauge that had been giving readings since 1965 joined them, failing completely at 7.10 p.m. The station would later be found tipped on its side, destroyed in a jumble of logs. When the river began rising, it had been chest deep where the sensor was reading. When the gauge failed, it was deep enough to submerge a school bus and still going up. After that, in dark of night and in an expanding black hole of data, it was simply a matter of water running downhill, off the slopes and into the tributaries, and down those tributaries to the rising Nicola River. Chapter 4 I Can't Turn Around Now November is not the most scenic month in the Nicola Valley. The fall leaves are mostly off the cottonwoods and Saskatoonberry bushes, leaving only the deeper greens of pine and fir. There's still a fine scent of sage in the air, but the roadside quack grass is straw-colored, the rabbit brush topped with desiccated flowers. The only notable birds at this time of year are the ones that always seem to watch over our human misadventures, crows, ravens, black-billed magpies. Clapperton Ranch was home to another of the government's water-level sensors, and it had been a loyal servant. Readings from this station on the Nicola River stretch back to 1911, more than a century of data. At around 10.15 a.m. on Monday, November 15th, it stopped transmitting. Later, Alan Simpson would watch the river crest the roof of the gauge house, after which the whole structure was carried away. Downstream, Constable Brett Schmidt's journey had begun to thread together the valley's stories. Soon after leaving Nine Mile Gardens, he passed a 35-year-old steel bridge stretching across the river to Osprey Ranch. The ranch had been run as an orchard by Jeff Banoff since 2005, producing what Banoff called probably the best apples in the world. Banoff had started the day leading a meditation session in Vancouver, where he lives. Around noon, he checked the daily report from the River Forecast Center and lost any sense of serenity. It predicted that the Nicola River could reach a flow rate, what hydrologists call a river's discharge, of 850 cubic meters of water per second. That's not a lot compared to any number of big rivers, but for the Nicola, it was freakishly high. In 2018, Banoff had seen the river hit 350 cubic meters per second, and there was still nearly two meters of air beneath the river and the bridge. From this, he concluded that the bridge could survive even a once-in-a-century flood on the Nicola, estimated by hydrologists at 420 cubic meters per second, only 20% higher than what he'd observed. The November 15th forecast of 850 cubic meters per second, though, amounted to nearly 145% more water than he'd seen in 2018. The figure was so extreme that Banoff thought it could be an error. Schmidt, 
trekking past the steel bridge with the rushing torrent beneath it, would be the last person to see the bridge still standing. Only scattered showers fell from the sky, meager explanation for the strangeness of a violent, swollen river amid the dry landscape. Sometimes Schmidt walked on what was left of the road, sometimes through the sagebrush scrublands. At one sawn-off section of highway, the only way forward was to climb a high bank of hard-packed clay. Perfect, he said aloud to himself. Then over the hill he went, dodging mats of brittle prickly pear cactus on slopes otherwise crossed only by bighorn sheep. Schmidt passed through the small Inklakapma Reserve on Klucklowak Creek, now cut off from anywhere else by road, but still high and dry. Next up on the riverfront was the sign for Mountain Shadows Ranch, decorated with upturned horseshoes. This was the home of Linda Weeb. Linda had retired to the Nicola Valley in 2015 with her husband Roy, who had recently moved into a senior's lodge in the town of Lillooet. Linda made the hour-and-a-half-long drive to visit him several times a week. Like many properties along the Nicola River, Mountain Shadows Ranch was located on a point bar, the inside of a river bend. It's a sensible place to be, since rivers tend to erode their banks on the outside of their bends. Linda had fallen in love with what she called the ever-changing river. As that river swelled on November 15th, she reached out to her stepson, Steve Weeb, who was living in Surrey, Vancouver's largest suburb. In their first call, she told Steve that it had rained a lot in the night and the river was high, but she wasn't too worried about it. Not long after, she reported that mud and rocks had come down onto Highway 8 in both directions. But that wasn't so concerning either. The area was prone to slides. Road crews usually came soon after and plowed them away. By noon, the main channel of the river had reached her deck, and water had begun to run between her home and the highway. Good grief, good grief, she wrote to Steve in a text. Two hours later, she was trapped. Hope it doesn't get worse, because I can't get out of the yard now, she texted. Garage is flooded, trees are down, water is up to the house. I'm still okay, though. Linda was scared, but expected that the river would soon crest. What she may not have realized was that the Nicola wasn't only flooding, it was moving. The main channel was jumping its banks to pour straight across the point bar, with her home directly in its path. At 3.09 p.m., just minutes from when cell service in the area was lost, Steve received a final text, a photograph. In it, he could see that the river had broken apart the mountain shadow's bunkhouse and was carrying the pieces towards Linda's home. Her hot tub was floating by the side of the house. After that, Steve couldn't contact her, and he scrambled to reach other locals unsuccessfully, as all phone connections were down, and the RCMP. Weeb's cabin was nestled in pines away from the road, and Schmidt, making his way past Mountain Shadow's ranch in the fading daylight, was unaware of what was happening there. 
A couple of curves in the highway later, though, he saw a family in frantic activity. The property had a hand-painted sign reading, Monkey in the Garden. The farm was the home of Brandy MacArthur, Michael Coots, and their 10-year-old daughter, Luna, as well as Brandy's mother, Charlene Johnson, and Brandy's brother, Aaron. They called themselves the Monkeys, an earthy, nearly self-sufficient household with gardens, fruit trees, poultry, dairy goats, a dog, a cat, a bull, and a milking cow. The river gave them water for their crops, daily doses of beauty, and a swimming hole to escape the summer heat. That river was our good friend, Brandy told me. On the evening of Sunday, November 14th, the monkeys had heard a sound begin to fill the valley. We thought it was the wind, said Brandy. So our daughter and I went out to look, and it was like, oh no, that's the river. It's getting pretty high. In the morning, it was higher still and rising in sudden pulses. The first thing the river took was the chicken coops in the lower fields, which flooded as quickly as Michael could remove the birds. They didn't imagine it could go much higher. How could it? That was unprecedented, said Brandy. Well, it kept coming up. They spent the rest of the day scrambling to save their animals and salvage what they could from the land before the river washed it away. Charlene, who came to Canada from the Finger Lakes region of New York in 1975, we were not following the American way of functioning, she said, tried to distract herself in the kitchen, making yogurt out of milk from Tina the cow. I was inside, by myself, scared shitless, she said. She was sitting in the living room when the river came into the house. First water flowed into the crawl space, then it spilled into the kitchen. It's hard to overstate how much the river had to climb to reach this point. To get to the Nicola from the monkey's house on a more typical day, you'd have to pick your way down a rocky hillside. The highest high water the monkeys had ever seen was five meters below their home. Charlene climbed halfway up the steps to the house's second floor, sat down, and prayed. Shortly afterward, the family retreated to the top of their driveway. From there, all they could do was watch, as much of their world was swept away. When Brandy saw a fit-looking bearded man, Constable Schmidt, coming down the road, she thought he must be an escaping volunteer from one of her neighbor's organic farms. They talked briefly, then carried on with the challenges in front of them. For Schmidt, that meant another scramble up a mountainside above another gap in the highway. Around the next bend, yet another household was fighting the flood. Darkness was gathering, but Schmidt could see a woman on an all-terrain vehicle and a parked truck with its headlights pointed at a house. The woman was Kim Cardinal, and her husband, Lauren Thibodeau, was hurriedly carrying loads out of a house surrounded by water. Oh my God, are you okay? Cardinal said as Schmidt approached. What's going on? Schmidt sketched out the story of his day. With the professional demeanor of a Mountie, he appeared calm. But by this point, he understood that no one was coming to help him or anyone else along Highway 8. 
He also knew that Spence's Bridge, where he would be safe and able to tell the outside world what was happening, must be only a few kilometers away. It had become his single-minded obsession. I'm just going to hike down to Spence's Bridge, he said. You're pretty close, replied Cardinal, but you can't make it out. It's sheer cliff. She already knew that the road beyond her property was washed out, and some of the valley's steepest terrain stood between Schmidt and his goal. Well, I'm going to try, Schmidt said. Cardinal didn't argue. If you get stuck, she said, you come back and stay with us. You can sleep in our truck. At that point, she and Thibodeau thought the worst they'd be dealing with was water damage in the house come the morning. Schmidt trudged onward into what was now the darkness of night. The scene soon turned from shocking to surreal. The roar of the river filled the valley. From under the water came the thunder of boulders rolling in the deep and the whoomp of hillsides collapsing. The noise shook the air and rocks some the size of Schmidt's backpack began tumbling down onto the road. He could hear power lines twang and poles thud around him as they were toppled by the flood. In the end, 87 poles came down, one of them ultimately found nearly 400 kilometers away, having floated down three different rivers to the coast. By the light of his phone, Schmidt ducked and wove between the fallen lines, unsure whether electricity still flowed through them or not. Once, he came to a halt with his face just inches from a line. For the second time that day, he felt the plain horror of nearness to death. Then he realized that he wasn't alone. Animals were gathering on the road, bighorn sheep and deer, as stunned by the day's events as he was. Glancing down, he saw two creatures plodding beside him, keeping pace like a couple of dogs walking to heel. Except that they weren't dogs. They were beavers. He wondered if the light on his phone was acting as some kind of beacon, the electronic halo of a patron saint of animals. In front of him, the road once again petered out into the rampaging river. This time, though, the mountainside was too steep to climb. I'm so close, he thought. I can't turn around now. I just want to get the hell out of here. Then he saw that an asphalt ledge, all that was left of the road, still clung to the embankment. He eased his way out onto it, sometimes stepping on the ledge, sometimes the cliff itself. Then he was falling. A moment later, up to his ribs in cold water, the thought flashed through his mind that this is how he would die, sucked away into the total darkness and violence of a river that was tearing down mountains. In the next second, he realized that, by some perfection of chance, he had fallen into a pool of eerie calm. Drenched, he clawed his way back onto the steep bank, then up again to the asphalt ledge. Somehow, he had hung onto his bags and even his phone. Screw this, Schmidt thought. That could have been a lot worse. He turned back the way he had come, again dodging power lines as he went. When he got back onto the straight stretch leading to Cardinal and Thibodeau's home, he saw that Cardinal 
had spotted the bobbing light of his phone and was coming to fetch him on her quad. Then he noticed, in the spotlight cast by the vehicle headlights, that the river was now deep around the house, and rain had begun to pour down. Chapter 5. Off the Charts Schmidt woke up in a pickup truck. He was tired and could feel that the temperature was dropping. Someone was banging on the window. It was Cardinal, crying for help. A few moments earlier, Cardinal, who was sheltering with Thibodeau in a travel trailer hitched to the pickup, had the feeling that she should check on the horses. They had managed to gather so little from their house besides their pets that she wasn't even wearing a jacket or socks in her rubber boots. She stepped outside. Cardinal is an animal person. On her property, she had six cats, seven dogs, one with a litter of puppies, plus peacocks, chickens, and ducks. There are also three horses, none of which she rode. One of them, named Winter, was a rescued white quarter horse with ice-blue eyes. In the dim glow of her flashlight, Cardinal could see that Winter had backed himself up against the corral and was anxiously prancing in place. Walking over to investigate what was spooking the horse, Cardinal saw that the animal's field was rapidly shrinking. Winter was staring at a broken edge and a straight-down drop to the water. Cardinal ran to get Thibodeau. She ran to wake Schmidt. Together, they raced to lead the horses up onto Highway 8 and build a small corral for them out of interlocking metal panels. At one point, a corral panel ripped out of Thibodeau's hands as the ground underneath it collapsed. At another, Schmidt had to push Cardinal out of the way of a falling telephone pole. The chickens and ducks were already gone. They set the peacocks free, only to watch the river sweep them away. Cardinal shouted that they needed to move their vehicles onto the highway. Just afterward, they saw the river take the barn. It didn't fall over, Cardinal would later say. It just disappeared, dropped. Then the driveway they'd been parked on whooped into the water. That horse saved three lives, Cardinal said. Cardinal and Thibodeau were relative newcomers to the valley, having moved in a year and a half earlier. They had come to retire, a decision they'd made after watching the alley behind their home in Chilliwack, a city east of Vancouver, become a place Cardinal didn't feel safe to walk in. The last straw came when criminals abandoned and set fire to a stolen car in their driveway. They had turned their new home, which had stood beside the river for nearly 50 years, into an oasis that their grandkids would visit and never want to leave. On November 15th, they watched the life they had built disappear piece by piece. The river was devouring their land from top to bottom. With the driveway went a vintage tractor and a boulder the size of a pickup truck, brightly painted with an eagle and their address. Then, all of a sudden, you could hear the nails in the house twisting and the windows starting to break, Cardinal said. The house didn't drop. It got pushed over. It just crumbled. But the river wasn't finished. It took the tower that the former owner had used to wind-dry salmon, 
and that Cardinal and Thibodeau had planned to turn into a bed and breakfast. It carried away a horse trailer and a flatbed trailer, Thibodeau's car, a Class A motorhome, the largest type on the market. It just floated down the river. We watched it just float, said Cardinal. With that, their property had been entirely erased. With help from Schmidt, they had their cats, dogs, and horses up on the road in corrals and vehicles. Thibodeau and Cardinal still had their travel trailer to sleep in, and Schmidt had their Ford pickup as a bedroom. But they were parked on a stretch of Highway 8 that was cut off northbound and southbound, with the river eating in on them. Every few minutes, they would check how much more ground the rapids had taken. They could hear the relentless work of what one local would later describe as sandpaper water. Cardinal spent the night in terror that the land they were on would fall out beneath them, and that would be that. There is no way to know how rare a disaster this was in the historical record, though even government scientists later said that it could have been a near-mythical thousand-year flood. In at least one study, the mid-November event is presented as literally off the chart, high up in the right-hand corner of the page. Canada's National Hydrological Service ultimately estimated that the Nicola reached somewhere between 650 and 800 cubic meters of discharge. At the high end, that is nearly double the size of a once-in-a-century flood. Jim Ryan, who lives across the Nicola River from Steve Rice, near Spences Bridge, thought the number could have been even higher. Ryan ran a whitewater rafting business on the Nicola and other local rivers for a decade, which involved paying close attention to the river's flows in order to know how large and powerful the rapids would be. He also checked the river every 10 minutes through the night of November 15th, his tent and sleeping bag packed in case he had to abandon his home. The river peaked at 10 p.m., he said. Based on his knowledge of the river, his estimate of its highest flow rate was at least 1,000 cubic meters per second. It was a monster. This was absolutely a monster and something to absolutely be afraid of, said Ryan. I felt fear. Just upriver from where Cardinal, Thibodeau, and Schmidt were anxiously surviving through the night, the monkeys saw the river at its highest too. As they tried with little success to sleep in their vehicles, they suddenly realized that the rain had stopped and a near full moon was shining. They stepped out into the chilly air and walked to where they could take in the full view. The river did not resemble a river. It looked like a moonlit ocean in a storm. Chapter 6. What the Night Took Away The last property to take the full brunt of the flood, just upriver of where the Nicola fades into the much larger Thompson River at Spences Bridge, was the Kernu Place. It had been settled by Richard Big Dick Kernu, a Cornishman who arrived in British Columbia in the late 1850s and moved freight during the Fraser River Gold Rush. He later set up a stopping house on the road built in 1876 that would become Highway 8. Most recently, the land had been home to Mary Kernu. 
She had only moved away from it six months earlier, after a fall at the age of 91 landed her first in hospital and then a long-term care home. She still talked about moving back. T.J. Wacom, her great-nephew, was appointed to make decisions on her behalf in the meantime. At nightfall on November 15th, after the river had risen enough to float away some of the posts and rails for the livestock corrals, Wacom had moved the old farm machinery out of harm's way. He also, as was his usual practice, made sure Mary's two dogs, Kayla and Pup-Pup, along with her cat, Kitten, were safely inside the farmhouse. Then he went back to his own home in Spences Bridge, a five-minute drive away. He and his father, Charles, who also lived nearby, tried to check on the place at 10 p.m. that night, but were turned back by a highway crew who said that live power lines had come down. The road was impassable. Wacom had no awareness whatsoever of the disaster playing out upriver. I tried to get some sleep, he said. I tossed and turned and woke about five in the morning with the pit of my stomach like, oh no, we lost something. His dad had gotten up at first light, checked on the Kernu place, then driven to Wacom's to say simply that the situation wasn't good. When the two of them crested the hill that gave them a view of the Kernu property, they could see that the main barn, which Charles had seen still standing in the dim light before sunrise, had collapsed. The house wasn't there at all. Mary's dogs are her life. That's the thing that keeps her going. I had locked them in the house. And when I got over here, to see the house gone was terrible. Terrible. Just thinking that her dogs were gone, and I was the cause of that, Wacom said. I know you don't go there, blah, blah, it's not my fault, it's a natural disaster. But I'm the one who put them in the house. Wacom has the thoughtful manner of a gentleman cowboy, an impression deepened by his walrus mustache and trim beard, both ginger-colored with some first streaks of gray. He is a Kurnu on his dad's side, and Inklakapma on that side as well. His sister, Christine Minabariot, is the current chief of the Cook's Ferry Indian Band. In other words, Wacom is from people who know the land, and he knew that the river had never seriously threatened the location of the house in 145 years. When Wacom had tossed and turned in the night, it wasn't out of worry that the river would erase much of the property from the face of the earth. That was unimaginable, he said. What he'd lost sleep over was how he was going to find time to fix the livestock pens that the flood had broken. Now Wacom could see that five bulls were trapped in what was left of those pens on a strip of land only a few paces wide. The highway bridge was washed out, so he ran across a surviving rail bridge to the Kurnu's upper pasture, ran across that, and finally reached the main property. His plan was to hook up a chain to the corral fencing and bust the bulls out. But the only farm vehicle he could get going was the Massey Ferguson 135, a tractor not built for the job. 
I had to really give her to break it, he said. He got the bulls into a safe field, followed by the horses. In the hay shed, he found one of the dogs, Pup-Pup, soaking wet. Not long after, his dad found Kayla in the field, caked in mud. Both dogs had somehow survived the disintegration of the house. The cat, like almost all of Mary's belongings, was never found. It's the shock of everything. That was her entire life. That was her mum's stuff, her dad's stuff. She had stuff in there that came over from the original Kurnus on ships, Wacom said. All the horse-drawn equipment and everything, all that history is just gone. Everything you need to run this place is gone. The fuel, the parts, the rails, the pipe, all of it. The only things now left from Mary's time on the property are the hay shed and an old barn. The barn dates back to the days of Big Dick Kernu's original roadhouse. These are the kind of people who live on the Highway 8s of the world. People who find even small-town life too busy. People who produce food on family farms and ranches. People who want to bring up their children in a place with a swimming hole. People who reject the American way of functioning. People who have left behind the kind of cities where cars are set on fire in your driveway. People who want the space to live alongside animals. People whose families have been on the land for generations or for millennia. We can't all be happy in a skybox condo in a million-person metropolis. Chapter 7. A Brutal Logic After more than 12 hours of darkness, first light showed a day, Tuesday, November 16th, that was cold and wintry. In places, snow dusted the landscape. Along the shattered remains of Highway 8, people could see at last that the river had begun to retreat. At Clapperton Ranch, Alan Simpson no longer recognized his property. The last thing he and Christine Remington had seen by flashlight in the night was that the broad pasture below his home had become a churning whirlpool. It reminded Simpson of a giant toilet bowl, a maelstrom clogged with everything from the roofs of houses to shipping containers to trees. He was used to having the view upriver partly blocked by the foot of a mountain. That part of the mountain was gone. He now had an unobstructed valley view. Most startling of all, the slopes that had gradually climbed from the river to their house were missing. In their place, he stood at the lip of a 15-meter cliff of cobblestone and clay, just 20 paces from their home, with the current directly below him. That kind of soil would take men and machines weeks to move. The river did it in hours, he said. Later they would find their two-ton John Deere tractor and their fertilizer spreader, a big machine made of thick steel beams wadded up like balls of paper. They would never find their hay baler. So much sediment would settle on the riverbed that in places it was four meters higher than it had been, meaning the river had not only moved laterally, but vertically as well. Doug and Marlon Wyatt Purden slept better than most had that night. Pretty good, said Doug. But maybe they shouldn't have. 
Trenches cut by water showed that, at some point in the darkness, the land around their house had become an island, yet it remained dry above a small basement flooded by water rising through the soil. Just downstream, Osprey Ranch was high and dry, but also inaccessible. Jeff Banoff would later find fragments of twisted metal and broken planks from his 35-year-old steel bridge as much as 17 kilometers downriver. With his irrigation system ruined, Banoff would lose 20 trees to the summer heat, despite efforts to save every tree that he could. The thing is, Banoff said, I thought climate change was going to be a problem for the next generation. The river had dispensed mercy or mayhem according to a brutal logic. It sought the shortest line through the valley and destroyed everything in that path. The Wyatt Purdens and Osprey Ranch were largely spared. Just downriver, the only sign that a large, sturdy log home ever stood where Linda Weeb had lived were power lines angling down from a remaining stretch of the highway to disappear into what was now the main channel of the Nicola. Months later, in spring, Linda's body would be found in the Fraser River near Chilliwack, about 200 kilometers downstream. The monkeys, Brandy MacArthur, Michael Coots, and their family, lost the bulk of their farm, though their house, built on rock, survived. Later airlifted out with all the stored vegetables and homemade cheese they could carry, they would briefly become famous when internet videos showed first their cow, Tina, and later their truck, hand-painted with the farm's name, being helicoptered out. Tina was pregnant at the time and would give birth to a calf, Blossom, five months later. But the psychological impact can be measured in a story with a much less happy ending. I am presently learning how to be blind, Charlene Johnson, Brandy's mother, told me. Her vision had been troubling her earlier in the year, but after the flood, she lost her sight completely. She thinks stress had a lot to do with it. In the morning light, Cardinal and Thibodeau saw that there was nothing left of their property but memories. A stranger standing in front of it would have had no reason to guess there had ever been land there. Cardinal went on to be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Months after the flood, the sound of passing trains, rumbling like boulders in the river, would cause her to leap out of bed and look to see if the ground was disappearing. A year would pass before they finally had a settled home again in Spences Bridge. On what is left of the Kernu place, at the Nicola's mouth, T.J. Wacom resolved to restore what he could to bring the land back into production. What weighed heaviest on his mind was that so much of his great Aunt Mary's legacy had been erased. He would ultimately decide not to tell her. This is really difficult, he said. We had a relationship based on the truth, the truth, and nothing but the truth. Mary Kernu passed away on August 2nd, 2022. As the water retreated, the riverbanks looked like a nightmarish garage sale made up of everything the river had stolen. A pair of pants, so full of silt it was as though someone's legs were still in them. 
a concrete block and a snarl of roots, a stirrup, a red Christmas tree ornament, a wheelbarrow, a fire hose, a fishing boat with ruined motor attached, a Cannondale Adventure 400 mountain bike, a car wrapped completely around a tree. Yet far more was lost than found. Of her own belongings, Cardinal found an extension cord connected to a light bulb, the bulb somehow unbroken, while kindly strangers found and returned a carving of a bear that turned up nearly 200 kilometers and two rivers away, and a little farther downstream, their propane tank. She got back just one photograph from her kids' childhoods and one of a dog she'd once owned. Among the many missing objects is a seven-foot wooden statue of what is known in British Columbia as a Sasquatch, but is more widely called a Bigfoot. What Cardinal misses most is a ring passed down to her by her mother. All along the Nicola River on the morning after the flood, Residents expected that dawn would bring the cavalry, rescue crews, police, medical help. Instead, long, cold hours passed beneath silent skies. Constable Brett Schmidt was among the first people on the river to be flown out. A crew surveying damage to the telephone lines spotted a fire that Thibodeau had built and landed. Cardinal didn't want to leave her animals behind, so she urged Schmidt to go, and tell the outside world what had happened to Highway 8. To suddenly see the valley from above was astounding. The highway looked like a children's toy set that had been flung out of its box. Chunks of curved pavement clung to hillsides or lay stacked and tilted upon one another. Huge gaps stood in between. In more typical floods, a river might shift a little, especially in the bends. In parts of the Nicola Valley, an analysis by BGC Engineering would later show, it was as though the river had moved two streets over. Sarah Davidson, a geoscientist with BGC, used before and after imagery produced with LIDAR, a technology that reads landscapes by bouncing a laser off them from the air, to determine that, along Highway 8 between Shacken and Spences Bridge, the flooding river tore away more than three million cubic meters of rock, sand, and dirt. If I used that much sediment to lay a path ankle deep and an arm span wide, the trail would stretch more than twice the 7,821 kilometer length of the Trans-Canada Highway. It's enough to build a sandcastle replica of the Empire State Building that is three times the size of the 102-story original. To move the same mass of material, estimated at 8.1 billion kilograms, would require 220,000 dump truck loads. What we've learned, Davidson said, is that when we have a really extreme flood like this, there's a threshold that's crossed where we end up seeing unexpected things. We see erosion in locations that we wouldn't have expected it to occur. Until the helicopters started showing up, Schmidt had felt like a character in an apocalyptic film, wondering why no one was coming to help. Arriving in Spences Bridge, he quickly learned why. The flood on the Nicola had been extreme, but the damage caused by the atmospheric river 
was far-reaching, there were other disaster zones. In British Columbia's Fraser Valley, there was widespread flooding across large areas of the cities of Abbotsford and Chilliwack, caused by the Nooksack River across the border in Washington. In an especially apocalyptic image, approximately 100 new RVs at a sales center in Abbotsford caught fire while surrounded by floodwaters. Some of the hardest-hit properties were on the bed of former Sumas Lake, where, until its waters were drained in the first years of the 1920s, the Samath people had built a seasonal village of stilt houses. In the town of Merritt at the southern end of Highway 8, the flooding Coldwater River spread as much as a kilometer from its channel, forcing the evacuation of all 7,000 residents. Farther south, the town of Princeton and the Similkameen River Valley downstream of it also witnessed a flood for the centuries. As one woman who had grown up there put it, in the springtime with the runoff, you're expecting, you're watching, but come on, this never happens in November. Debris flows and floods were widespread, including one on Highway 99, the route Brett Schmidt had first tried to drive to Vancouver, that killed five people. It would turn out to be the costliest natural disaster in British Columbia's history, with the price of infrastructure repairs and insurance claims potentially topping 13 billion Canadian dollars. The affected communities rallied. Residents took care of one another. A chasm soon showed, however, between the people who had witnessed events so exceptional that they seemed like a rupture in time and space, and everyone else. As usual, critics muttered that people living alongside rivers get what is coming to them, as though the kind of flood that, statistically speaking, might last have occurred 500 years before Christopher Columbus set foot in the Americas should be on everyone's safety checklist. But beyond the predictable cheap shots, the entire system seemed unwilling or unable to recognize the scale of what had happened. People clashed with their insurers. Those who were suddenly homeless still owed banks money on land that no longer existed or received assessments showing their property taxes were going up. After the trauma of the wildfires and now the floods, they felt forgotten, as if their rural and small-town ways of life were somehow less valuable than the lives of others. Chapter 8. Shock of the New The day before the storm, Ian Pilkington, chief engineer for the Provincial Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure, could have told you how and when British Columbia's highways would be built to withstand the future. Pilkington, whose BC roots are deep enough that he drops the old Chinook trade jargon word skookum, meaning strong or excellent, into casual speech, would have told you that the plan was for a controlled response. As infrastructure reached the end of its useful life, typically about 20 years for highway asphalt or as much as a century for a major bridge, it would be upgraded. If extreme weather did damage here or there in the meantime, that too would provide an opportunity to build back better. That all changed on the morning of November 15th, with every highway to Vancouver closed and Highway 8 in pieces. 
We've never seen anything like that before, Pilkington said. Sometimes when these things happen, at first it seems pretty bad. And then we go in there and it's like, okay, we can get all the heavy equipment out, start hauling rock, or whatever we need to start filling something in. But once we started seeing the devastation, as the photos were coming in, that was mind-blowing. The magnitude of devastation was just unbelievable. Or, as one veteran road-building manager said when asked how the biggest flood repairs he'd worked on previously compared to the job of rebuilding Highway 8, on a scale of 1 to 10, those were a 2, and this is a 10. It isn't that the British Columbia government didn't know that a disaster like the atmospheric river of November 2021 could happen. It did know. More than a decade earlier, an engineering study assessed the threat of climate change to the wet, coastal-facing half of the Coquihalla Highway. It found that every high-risk or even medium-high-risk climate infrastructure interaction, that is, weather that could lay waste to what we build, was likely to occur during heavy rainfall and Pineapple Express climatic events. The report's authors concluded that the danger that more severe atmospheric rivers would strike before 2053 was high enough to require immediate action. More recently, an audit of climate change adaptation reported that British Columbia is not adequately managing the risks. We probably thought we had more time, said Pilkington. We probably thought, yeah, when the stuff actually ages out from a materials point of view, we'll replace it then never thinking that it would hit us this hard, this soon. Paradigms don't always shift through the gradual acceptance of a new idea. Sometimes the shift just happens. An undeniable force explodes onto the scene. It's one thing to know, as engineers and earth scientists have for years now, that the climate is changing. To witness the raw power of it involves a deeper acknowledgement. The world is dividing into those who have experienced the shock of the new and those who have not. David Campbell of the River Forecast Center put it this way, things that we might traditionally have considered to be outliers, you know, maybe they're more plausible, maybe they're more possible than we think. The long-time approach in engineering has been to expect that the future will look like the past. In British Columbia and many other places, modern highways and bridges have been built to withstand the kinds of floods that historical data predicts will occur only every 100 to 200 years. The laws of physics tell us that storms and floods will be worse in the future. A one degree Celsius increase in air temperature allows that air to hold 7% more water vapor. Since 1900, British Columbia's average temperature has increased by at least 1.4 degrees, faster than the global average. As a result, atmospheric rivers here are roundly predicted to carry more water more often. Today's 1 in 200-year flood may be tomorrow's 1 in 50-year flood. The obvious solution is to start building roads to handle the 200-year floods of 2100 rather than those of 2022. For more than a decade now, the BC Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure 
has been working with the Pacific Climate Impacts Consortium, PCIC, a group of climate researchers based at the University of Victoria to get a sense of what to prepare for. We try to give planners the numbers that they need, said Farron Anslow, who leads climate analysis and monitoring at PCIC. Unfortunately, that means giving them a range of numbers that reflects the uncertainty both in the models and the emissions scenario that we're going to follow. To paraphrase former U.S. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, a lot of known unknowns are involved. We don't know how much the climate will warm, for example, because we don't know how much more climate pollution humanity will pump into the atmosphere. We don't know if or when or how quickly the global community will reduce those emissions. Some engineers and geoscientists now argue that it's inadequate to use a best bet on what the future has in store as our new standard for building infrastructure. Proponents of a risk-based approach say that we should consider instead what the consequences will be if that best bet turns out to be wrong. If a potential landslide could bury a small town, for example, or a bridge failure will severely harm the national economy, then even if the risk of these events happening is minuscule, it may be worth considering whether to move that entire community or armor that bridge against the worst future flood imaginable. On the other hand, a secondary highway might be exposed to a high risk of landslides. If we can tolerate having that highway closed from time to time, it may make more sense to build the road to withstand the slides than to protect it from slides completely. It's a paradigm shift, one that will demand a better sense of where our systems are vulnerable. And if the direst climate scenarios come true, even risk-based thinking may not be enough. In one analysis of the mid-November atmospheric river, a group of scientists hinted at a possible future in which natural forces spun beyond our control are the new normal. These authors begin to wonder, they wrote, what are the limits of geohazard manageability? The BC government did, briefly, consider not rebuilding Highway 8. Instead, they committed to rebuilding it in one year. It will be stronger now against a flood like the one that came down the Nicola but Pilkington isn't claiming it will hold up against the worst of what could come. More permanent fixes, including rebuilding stretches of road so they're completely out of reach of the river, will be weighed against probabilities, consequences, and cost. Because here is the alarming reality. Even now, without waiting for the future, the flood could have been much worse. The mid-November storm was a strong atmospheric river, but not one that topped the scale. Measured by precipitation, it was later estimated to be the type of weather that might roll in every 50 to 100 years. At only a rare few mainland weather stations was the rainfall completely off the charts, the ones closest to the landscape that sends its water to the Nicola River. Only there did scientists whisper that a once-in-a-thousand-years event might have occurred. It was a glimpse of an arc storm. 
The term arc storm was developed in 2011 as part of a U.S. Geological Survey disaster planning exercise. The A, R, and K stand, in science speak, for Atmospheric River 1000, the kind of storm that we might see only once in a millennium. Of course, the term also evokes weather of biblical proportions, the kind in which, like Noah, you might want to build an ark. The concept has mainly been applied in California, where recent research suggests that megastorm might be a better name. Extreme storms appear to take place there five to seven times per millennium. During the most recent one, which started in late 1861, a parade of atmospheric rivers struck across 45 days. The state's central valley turned into a lake 30 kilometers wide and nearly 500 kilometers long. Picture driving past the lake for half a day at today's highway speeds. The storm turned California's capital city, Sacramento, into Venice. Initially, Sacramentans filled the balconies of the main streets in an atmosphere remembered as mirth and hilarity. The humor wore thin as the flood turned into months of living in ice-cold, muddy water. Levees meant to keep water out instead trapped rainwater in. When one levee breached, the outflow was so strong it carried away 25 homes. The governor had to take a rowboat to his inauguration. A decade ago, the U.S. Geological Survey modeled the kind of impact that an arc storm would have on modern California. They predicted U.S. 400 billion in damage, one and a half million evacuations, 600,000 drowned farm animals, and tens of thousands of debris flows. Power, water, sewer, and other infrastructure would take weeks to months to restore. Major rail and road routes into Los Angeles from the north and east would be cut off, perhaps for weeks. Silicon Valley would flood. More research is needed to understand the history of megastorms in British Columbia. What's clear is that even in today's climate, such storms are possible here, and climate change makes them more likely. Scientists recently estimated that a chain of atmospheric rivers, like the one that caused the Great Flood of 1862, is already twice as likely to strike as it was in the past. Such an event, the Geological Survey warned, could occur in any year. Chapter 9. When the Past Speaks to the Future There is another way to think about the extremes that more and more of us will experience in the coming decades. It lies in what we might call long knowledge, the deep take. The night before the Nicola flood, just upstream from Clapperton Ranch, Chief Arnie Lampro of the Shacken Indian Band had fallen asleep, as he often does, watching the Weather Channel. His thoughts were nagged by the call he'd received from one of the band counselors, Lindsay Ty, just before he'd settled in for the night. Cold water is evacuated, he remembered Ty saying. Ty meant the Cold Water Indian Band, far upstream from Shacken. What do you mean they've evacuated? Lampro said. They're flooding out, Ty said. What do you mean they're flooding out? 
Lampro said. Ty explained. The Coldwater River was rising, and the band there had evacuated parts of the community. Lampro was surprised, but didn't give it much thought. Rain was falling that night in Shacken, but that wasn't unusual for an autumn evening. He went to sleep. With the morning light, he saw that the river was in his lower hayfield. Already, he'd have to drive through water just to get over Chief Anthony Joe Bridge, which connected his property and a few others to Highway 8. The response of most people along the Nicola that morning, and of most experts watching river gauges from their desks, was to believe, quite reasonably, that a bad situation wouldn't get a lot worse. Lampro's reaction was different. He studied the river a while longer. As a child, he had, like so many indigenous children between the 1830s and 1990s, been taken from his family and placed in what was known as an Indian residential school. Lampro ended up in the Kamloops School, the institution made infamous in the spring of 2021 when ground-penetrating radar provided evidence of what the Tecumloops to Sikwipma community in the area had long believed. The Catholic Church officials who ran the school had buried children who died from disease, neglect, and abuse in their custody in an overlooked plot of land. Every day I was fighting, Lampro said. I hated it there so bad. He would run away, too, hiding in the field that decades later he would learn was the children's graveyard, and once swimming the South Thompson River and climbing far into the hills before police and their dogs caught up with him. After about four years in the institution, they kicked him out. The Inklakapma have lived along the Nicola River and its surrounding region for at least 5,000 years the age scientists have given to their oldest rock paintings. The Shacken are intimately tied to the waterways. They're one of five Inklakapma bands known as the Shawakam, the people of the creeks, with the main creek being Shwa, the Nicola. Once he was home from residential school, these were the people who taught Lampro the river. On the morning of the flood, he recognized signs that something unusual was happening. High water is normally in spring, and he knew that when it happens in the fall, it often means a bigger flood. Then there was what he saw in the river. When you see big logs going by, you know that something's coming, Lampro said. We had big logs going by. I mean big logs, and lots of them. The water would not only flood some properties, he suspected, but also sections of the highway, severing access to the outside world. He hadn't received an evacuation alert, and one wouldn't be issued for the lower Nicola for several more hours. But with a neighbor, Lampro began going door to door, telling people to gather their medications and a few days' worth of clothes and prepare to leave. A few people resisted at first. They'd been evacuated already that year due to the threat of wildfire. In the end, though, most of the community started driving upriver toward Merritt. By the time Lampro made the trip, he had to drive through water along one stretch of road. One year after the flood, 
Lampro was still unable to return home because the Chief Anthony Joe Bridge, 45 meters of heavy metal, had been torn off its footings and thrown up on the bank 300 meters downstream. Not long after the flood, he had found himself thinking about what there was to go home to, even if he could. Burned mountains all around. A valley bottom that seemed suddenly unlivable. He started to wonder whether the band should move to a safer place where they could make a fresh start. Debate about this option continues among band members. It would be what climate change adaptation experts call managed retreat. Lampro says it's about getting the message. I think it's Mother Nature at her best, telling us that you guys better smarten up because you're abusing me, Lampro said. The idea of nature as something that can give warning, that can be angered, that can be, as Aldous Huxley wrote, occasionally diabolic, stands outside the Western tradition of science. Yet people up and down the Nicola spoke of the flooding river in that older way. They saw the river of November 15th as a different being with a different character. That was the demon river from hell, said Michael Coots. Charlene Johnson said the river was angry. She said, we've pissed off the entities or the gods somewhere. Kim Cardinal said flatly, the river has taken its land back. Whatever the scientific merit of these kinds of thoughts, they have had their uses. In the mountains of Europe, the mysterious movement of large boulders across long distances or high into the branches of trees or scenes of unimaginable destruction were long assigned to giants and dragons. Such stories serve to warn residents against building their homes in geologically dangerous places long after the deadly events have been forgotten. An Icelandic writer, Andri Snar Magnusson, recently wondered aloud whether we, as a global society, might not have done better at protecting the planet over the past few centuries if, alongside our science, we had never given up the idea that nature could be holy or sacred, or, I might add, could reach out and smite us if it was mistreated. In fact, there is a story along these lines from northern British Columbia, one in which indigenous thinking and Western scientific method unexpectedly meet. In a book published in 1962, Nistahok, also known as Walter Wright, who described himself as one of the head chiefs of the Gitzlasu people, shared the ancient story of how a giant supernatural bear descended from the mountains to lay waste to the city of Dimlahamid because people there had disrespected nature. Thirty years after Wright's book, Western scientists determined that approximately 3,500 years ago, a debris flow, we can now guess that it might have been triggered by an atmospheric river, spilled off a mountain now said to be part of the Rocher de Boulet, in English, Fallen Rock, range, but whose older name is Stegiaden. The flood traveled several kilometers and covered 300 hectares, enough mud, wood, and stone to bury most of downtown Vancouver. The scientists saw Wright's story as conveying possible eyewitness evidence of the slide. Wright spoke of 
some gigantic force coming down the valley of the creek, a wide gash in the greenery, and great trees thrown high above the forest top. The Western tradition has sought to control such forces with remarkable success so far. The point of Wright's story was different. It was meant to correct behavior. Great disasters are the landmarks of a people who are wise, Wright said. They mark the ending of a time of error. They set a starting point for a better mode of life.